the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Well, uh, last night it was about bedtime and I was went outside to the backyard to let the dog in and the dog always hides from me, so I was walking around out there. <laughs> My daughter's here. She knows our dog. And uh, and I got to looking around. I said, wow, it's a clear night. And I could see the stars so bright. And and, I, and last year, you remember when we had a lot of different things going on in the heavens or whatever, uh, last couple of years, I, I got to star watching a whole lot. And I said, I hadn't done that all year. So I went on and, and found one of those chairs by the pool that you could just lay back. And I, and I put my glasses on so I could see. And they just... I was staring up at them diamonds in that black sky, you know, and I was watching and it was like peaceful. I love looking at the stars because, you know, that's God's handiwork. They declare his glory. You know, if, how can you look at the stars and not see God's handiwork? How can you be an atheist? Come on, just go outside, dude. You know, and anyway, I was looking at the beauty of the stars and I started praying. I said, God, show me a shooting star. You know how I like those shooting stars. And I waited. And I ain't kidding. It wasn't three or four minutes. This, this huge shooting star came, I mean, as a meteorite or whatever it was, came across the sky, and it, took, it was one that was so big that you saw it actually slow down when it hit the atmosphere. You know, that, they, they come fast at first, but this one with the weight of it just slowed down and, and went across the sky before it burned out, and I could see a trail of red gas or something following behind it even at night. It, it, it went down so low I thought it was going to hit in the neighborhood over across the street. It was, it was cool. I was, thank you, Lord. That's awesome. And I was waiting for the next one, and here comes Angie, and she comes out. I said, what you doing out here? I said, just watching the stars. Come, you ought to come check it out. I just saw the huge, this big, huge meteorite. She said, you always say that. Well, I said, well, I do. I, you know, I'm patient. I, I'll sit out there and watch them. I, I, you can see them just about any night. It don't have to be a certain night to see them. If, if you're patient, you'll usually see one. She said, well, let me see. And she sat down. She was watching, you know, two or three minutes and sounded like she was dozing off over there. And I was like, Angie, you paying attention? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and all of a sudden, I, I saw one of those real quick quick ones. You see the quick one, go, well, it goes down. It went across the sky real quick. I said, you see, you see that one? She goes, no. She said, are you just making this up? I said, it was right there. Pay attention. Waited another few minutes. Same thing. And one came over there. I said, you see, No. You're not paying attention, Angie. Come on, pay attention. She said, you're just making this up. And so I started praying, Lord, let her see, let her see it, you know. And uh, she said, you're always talking about satellites, too. I don't ever see them either. Do y'all know that there's over 27,000 pieces of space junk orbiting the Earth at any given time? And if you, if you watch carefully, you can actually see satellites and pieces of space debris or something that's circling our orbit go over and when they do the you know the sun shines off them for a period of time and then they shine and you can see them as they go by now most of the time they look just like little stars like a little bitty star out there you know an airplane is always blinking you know you can tell a light from a, the star or, or something just a reflection and i see them a lot they're usually really little and she says you're always talking about satellites i don't see those either and i'm about right on cue i said 
Look right there, Angie. And sure enough, a little satellite was coming by. She said, how you know that ain't airplane? I said, you don't hear no airplane. I said, watch, watch it. You don't see no blinking lights. And sure enough, we just watched it. And as it got over our head, all of a sudden, it disappeared. And that's how you really know it's a satellite, because once it gets a certain distance, it stops reflecting the sun, you know, the angle or whatever. And so you don't see it anymore. She said, well, that was cool. And I'm not kidding. In about two minutes, I said, there's, there's another one. I said, no, that's too big. That's got to be an airplane. And it started coming right over our head. I said, that's, it is a satellite. And we watched it. And I said, that's, Angie, that's got to be the space station or something. I mean, that is huge. It looked, you know, how big Mars has been lately. It was about that big. It was just cool. I said, I had never seen a satellite that big. She said, you sure that's a satellite? Sure enough, it went over our head and disappeared. And I said, I can't believe it. We sat there another 15 minutes waiting on something else to happen. We didn't see anything. Finally, it got bedtime, so we went in the house. But when we get, went in the house, I got my phone out, and I Googled. And I said, how do you see the International Space Station from Earth? And there was a website on there, some little-known group, NASA or something like that. Oh, NASA, yeah. And they had a website. And I got on there, and they said, put your location in there. It'll tell you the exact time that you can see the space station orbiting the Earth, you know, if it's not cloudy. And I looked, and I put my dress in there, and it said 9.52 today you can see the space station. And that was about eight minutes ago, and it was 10 o'clock. And we had indeed saw the International Space Station go right over our heads. And I thought that was cool. Y'all think that's cool? Good, that's all I got. <clears throat> yes, when y'all see Angie next time, tell her to pay attention. I'll tell you why I told this story a little later, but turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is, you probably could quote it, you probably could sing the song that they sing about it. Somebody wrote a song. For everything, verse 1, for everything there is a season. Say a season. A time for every activity under heaven. Everything's got its place. There's a time for stuff. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to harvest. And you know in between that it takes water and a time to water, a time to pluck, a time to fertilize. There's a time for everything, right? And if you go on and read the rest of that scripture, it just talks about there. There's different time periods. There's different seasons. And, and as people, we go through seasons in our life, don't we? And if you look at the history, which we've been doing in this series called The Human Condition. You're looking at last year's notes. The Human Condition, we took, we've begun to look at Mankind from way back in the garden. And now we've made our way all the way through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into the life of Jesus. And through it all, we see that there were seasons where God did this, and seasons where God did that, and seasons where people did this, and so forth. We've been studying these things. There was a season that man was in the garden. Then there was an eviction. There was a time before the flood, before the law. Before the patriarchs. And there was a season in bondage in Egypt. There was a time in the wilderness. A time in the promised land. 
There was a king. Kings. Kingdoms. A destroyed kingdom. A time of the judges. Warning from the prophets. And always rebellion from the people. And all of this, I'm just describing my teenage years. <laughs> but it could be said about the history of mankind as well, right? Say seasons. You know what I'm talking about. You're in a season right now. Some sort of season in your life. And tonight's message, of course, is entitled Part 7, Seasons. Now, the last message we talked about, we talked about on a Wednesday night. It was two Wednesdays ago. I wasn't here for last Wednesday. Thank you, Brother Tom. I heard the podcast. It was an awesome message last Wednesday. Give him a round of applause for always being there. Great teacher of the Bible. Always a blessing to the body of Christ. Last message, though, that I preached on a Wednesday night in this series, we talked about the most important three years ever when Jesus started his ministry and finished his ministry on the cross and how radically he changed the course of history and he changed the course of direction of the future. And just that Jesus' life was so power-packed and, and I think about the season, the week of his passion just on this, that Sunday, how, how much he could get accomplished in one week. On a Sunday, he rode a donkey into Jerusalem and people were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And then by Monday, he's clearing out the temple and, and running the money changers off and turning over to the people selling doves, trays and stuff. And, the, and he's saying, y'all are making my father's house a, a den of thieves. And he, he was zealous for the house of God on Monday. And on Tuesday, the religious forces arrayed against him to stop him. They were trying to catch him and trap him in his words. It doesn't take long for the religious forces. You know what I mean religious? When I say, a lot of people think that Christianity is a religion so that we're religious people. Well, there is a real religion, but when I say religious, it ain't usually talking about taking care of orphans and widows. I'm talking about those people that's all about rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, and they wouldn't know God if he showed up on their front doorstep. Like these people who were trying to stop Jesus, stop God himself. And on Wednesday, one of his own disciples conspired to betray him. His master. On Thursday, when they got busy on Thursday, that's when he had his last supper. And he got down and washed his disciples' feet and sang them a song and, and taught them and ate a last meal with them and gave them some last-minute tips on life. And then he went out to the garden and he prayed with them. He prayed to God and sweat as it were, great drops of blood, and then the betrayer Judas came and gave him a kiss and betrayed him with a kiss. And then the Roman soldiers took him. And uh, all that happened on the Thursday night. And then we know Good Friday, we call it Good Friday, but it doesn't sound too good when you understand that Jesus endured like three trials early in the morning. They were just like a mockery of justice, of course. And then he was scourged with a cat of nine tails, just because Pilate thought that would appease the people, but it didn't. They were hungry after more blood, so they crucified the Lord of glory. And he died, and they buried him in a borrowed tomb. God in a borrowed tomb. That's, I think sometimes we just read this like it's a story. 
but the one who threw those stars into existence is now sealed on a Saturday morning and guarded by a regiment of soldiers as he lays in a dark, dank, borrowed tomb. God is dead. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Anybody ever have a season of an empty life? <laughs> I spent a good season there. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Man, doesn't that make you feel worth something? It makes you feel bad for what Jesus did, but, but to know he did it for you. That you were worth the, the sinless, spotless blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, to know that He loves you that much. And then, of course, on Sunday, that's the day we, we most like. That's Resurrection Sunday. And that's the day we find out that death couldn't hold Him, the grave couldn't stop Him. There's nothing the devil could do. The devil never had any control over Him at all. The people, he said, I don't, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. You see, nobody could take his life. And he resurrected from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. You know, when he said, he told his disciples several times, but on the third day, I'm going to rise. And they didn't believe it because it was such a preposterous claim. They couldn't even grasp it. They wouldn't even listen to him. They just thought it was a metaphor or something. They didn't even know. They didn't even remember he said it until after that he actually did it. It was such a preposterous claim. But that's how you can know you're serving the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, because you are serving a risen Savior, one that death could not hold. And now He holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And He offers them to whoever call upon His name and trust in Him. 1 Corinthians 15.4 says, He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. He didn't do this thing in a corner. This wasn't some secret little thing where they, it would be easy for them to say that it really didn't happen, that they're just all lying. 500 people at one time saw him raised from after he was come out of the tomb. And that's just at one time. We don't know how many times he might have talked to 484 people. <laughs> so there are a lot of people, a lot of witnesses who saw him die on the cross, saw him resurrected. This thing wasn't done in a corner. And in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, let's turn there. Y'all sound a little sleepy tonight. <laughs> there we go. Somebody's ready to respond. Man, I'm, I thought this was pretty good news. <laughs> Jesus is alive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're not serving Muhammad over here. His bones are dusty in some grave somewhere, you know. Buddha's still in the ground. We're serving a risen Savior, the true God, the living God. This makes me excited. It's easy to say something, to say you're God, but I think he proved it. 
Acts 1-3. It says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eaten with them, he commanded, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but just in a few days, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. It's a season coming, but, we, but the Father only knows when it starts. And they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Oh yeah, you will. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you will. You won't be worried about the times. You'll know he's coming back. You'll be excited about it, but you'll be so you'll have your head so uh, far into the gospel and spreading the gospel message that you pay attention. What was that? The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. We don't know when the next season is going to start. But we do know we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to go from being witnesses, telling people everywhere from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He might say from Horn Lake to Olive Branch to Jackson, Mississippi to, to Florida to might, might even go over there to California. So, After Jesus says this, he's taken up into heaven. These are the last things he says. He, he gives them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And it begins the church age. We've entered into a new season. Jesus is gone. That's the period of, you might call the gospels. That's when Jesus in the four, first four books of the New Testament or the gospels, the account of Jesus' life. But now we've moved over into the book of Acts. We've moved over into the church age, the age of grace, and it, it's where we still are now. We're still in the age of grace. What does it mean, the age of grace? It, it means that Jesus told us that we're saved through faith in Him, by grace. We're saved by grace. And we don't have to work our way, and we can be forgiven. It's, it's a wonderful time to live. It's, it's a... It's a a travesty that, that we're not having to keep people from coming in because the, the fire code's in here. I, I can't believe this place is not full. I mean, Jesus is risen. We can be forgiven. We can be brought into the family of God, and this place is not full? That's crazy. It's mind-boggling. But anyway, let's talk about the early church for a minute. The book of Acts. It chronicles the first 32 years of church history. Um, starts in 30 A.D. And, and ends with you know Paul going into Rome approximately 62 A.D. 32 years of church history. And it gives us a glimpse at what the early church was like. 
those who had walked with Jesus and how they, they began to do church after He left. Um, at this time, we see that God's chosen people, the Jews, had re refused to come to the feast, so to speak. They had refused. They had been bidden to come to the marriage feast of the Lamb, but they refused to come. They made excuses. We don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're not coming. So this is a period where God, He changes the focus of history. All of history has been about the Jewish people. They have been the star of the show, so to speak. He has put the spotlight on them and used them as an example for the rest of us, the Gentiles. Gentiles are just everybody who's not a Jew. You're either a Jewish or a Gentile, one or the other. And so he takes the spotlight off the Jews because they have clearly rejected their Messiah who he's waited 4,000 years to send and who he has tried to convince for 4,000 years that he's coming. And when he came, they didn't recognize him and they didn't want him. And so he says, fine, you're not going to be the star of the show anymore. I'm taking the focus and I'm putting it on the church, those who will believe. I'm, bidding, I'm going into the highways and the byways and I'm compelling them to come into my feast. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord can come on into the feast. And so he puts his attention on the church. On the day of Pentecost, how many knows what happened on the day of Pentecost? That's the day that the promise of the Holy Spirit came. Now what amazes me is it was only 120 disciples in the upper room praying when, when the Holy Spirit came. Now Jesus had prayed to the, he had preached to the multitudes. He had healed more people than that. He had cast out demons more than 120 people. Where were all the grateful people at? He said, go to Jerusalem and wait until you be endued with power from on high. And, and the Holy Spirit comes and there's only 120 there. That also is mind-boggling. But par for the course for humanity, wouldn't you say? How many would say that we don't have such a good track record unless it's for being knuckleheads? But these 120, they're there. They're in one accord. They're praying. The Holy Spirit comes in, the promise of God, and He sits upon them like tongues of fire and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues and they're able to speak in other languages and they go outside. Peter preaches a message and 3,000 people are saved. Now that's what I'm talking about. We, we, we have like 115 on a Sunday service and we're like, Yahoo! But 3,000, could you imagine if we got 3,000 people saved at our next outreach? Where would we put them? Hey, we'll find a place. We'll have an outside church in the parking lot. But anyway, they got 3,000 people saved. And the, and the apostles are now filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're going out preaching. And they're going around laying hands on people. And they're getting healed. They're doing the same things that Jesus did. And isn't that what he said in John 14? That the works that I do, shall you do also? Greater works than these shall you do? And they're like, this is awesome. How would you like to lay hands on the sick and... Watch them get healed. What does it say in Mark 16? These signs shall follow them that believe. <laughs> well, we don't believe. Either the word of God is not true or we don't believe. These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Look it up for yourself. So... And by Acts chapter 4, 
the believers, all these new believers are such excitement in the house. I love zealous new believers, don't you? They come in, they get me excited. And they're all on fire for Jesus. They just they keep the fires burning. If, if the church is getting stale and, and nobody's excited anymore, how about somebody bring in a couple of new believers? Let's get some people saved. And, and that's how you stoke the fires in a church. And so they're all, they're all excited, and, and guess what they want to do? Well, I'm selling my land that I was just keeping for myself, and I'm taking the money, and I'm, I'm giving it to the poor, and we're going to make sure nobody in here is in lack, and that nobody has too much, and nobody's studies being rich and, and hoarding up stuff for themselves, and they just had this heart. It was kind of like a socialist idea, but anyway... But like, mo- but like socialist ideas, it didn't work because by Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were already trying to take advantage of the situation. <laughs> they, they sold a piece of land and they didn't give all the money and they lied to the Holy Ghost. Anybody remember what happened to them? It brought fear back to the church. <laughs> but anyway, as they were preaching the gospel and people were getting saved, how many of you know the devil don't like that? And when you're making an impact, you know, we could sit back here over across from street from Hooters and, and nobody know we're back here and we could just be fine for 50 years. But we start preaching the gospel. We start getting people saved. We start being the church. We're going to get persecuted. And that's what happened to them. The devil found people that he could work through authorities, whoever, they began to try to throw them in jail for preaching to Jesus. And they began to persecute the church. But you know what? Paul had told us, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It just comes with the territory. Are you afraid of persecution? You afraid somebody might say something, hurt your little feelings? Nobody wants to get their feelings hurt. Nobody wants to go to jail. But, but I know somebody who did an awful lot of stuff for me. And he says, if you'll suffer with me, you'll also reign with me. The apostles had to grow wise real quick, so to speak. They had to become leaders overnight. They were followers of Jesus, but all of a sudden now their church is 3,000 plus. They got to find room for these people. They got to get these people going through the circle. They got to get them connected and, and developed and mobilized. And they got to do all these things. They got, they're worried about the spiritual condition of all these people. And, and then they got people coming up saying, well, y'all ain't making sure the women over here are getting fed. So they begin to have to think, hey, we can't do it all. And they begin to think, I think God's intention is for the fivefold ministry gifts, like pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and what's the other one? Apostles. They're here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, the American church, all this time, you thought that you came to the church and the pastor was supposed to visit all the sick people. You thought the pastor was supposed to get everybody saved. You thought the pastor was supposed to invite everybody. That's the way the American church is set up, isn't it? That's the way the pastor, he's the only one that uses his gifts. And everybody else sits and watches and criticizes. But no. The way it's supposed to work 
is I'm not going to leave the Word of God to ten tables. I'm supposed to be concerned about your spiritual needs. And you go do the work of the ministry. I'm supposed to study, pray, and then tell you, teach you the Word of God and show you how to do the work of the ministry. That's much more effective. Now we've got all these workers in the fields. Think how, you know, it says the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Think how it'd be if you got to like seven worn out pastors out there in the harvest. And their, and their congregations is sitting around, go get them, pastor. That would be ridiculous. When we got all these people, man, if we pull together, what could we not do? So they figured that out. They learned to hear from God. They, they had to clarify some doctrinal issues. You know, should we do this? Should we do that? What should we require of the Gentiles if they're not circumcised? Should we? They, so they, they had to learn to hear from God. They made some mistakes. You know, we're humans. All of us are humans. We all make mistakes. And so we're, we're trying to hear from God, but we make mistakes. God corrects us. It'll be okay. But the, the church was under persecution heavily after a while, and it got dispersed. They were all based in Jerusalem, you see. They, when they got, say, uh, they got filled with the Holy Ghost, they were in Jerusalem, and they were preaching in Jerusalem. And they got all these 3,000-plus Christians, and they're all preaching in the same little fishbowl. They're fishing in the same place. But when the persecution came, the devil said, Aha, we'll run them off. But what he did is he ran them off, and they, they scurried like rats, and they went out there and started telling people all over the world. And I want you to know the church of Jesus Christ works better under persecution. It's not our best look to fit in culturally, to be accepted, because what happened here in America? We were accepted. We were a Christian nation, and it seemed good at first, but then we come up with these wacky ideas like the pastor's supposed to do it all. We come up with all these ideas like it's about who's got the best softball league. That's where I'll go to church. Who's got them paddedest seats? Paddedest. <laughs> See, she's, she's thinking about leaving. She said, we don't serve breakfast. <clears throat> hey, the church is starting to suffer a little persecution here in America. Why? Because the church hadn't done its job. And there's a lot of crazy people out there that don't know Jesus. And we got fat and we got comfortable and we got lazy because this was a Christian nation. And we thought, hey, you know, we send, we give a few bucks in the, in the offering plate and feel good about ourselves. We send a missionary. We send somebody else over to do, do something. But no. Now we find ourselves in trouble. Now we're not a majority anymore. But I don't want you to be afraid because the church works best under persecution. Because when the persecution hits, all the little fence riders, they got to make a decision. And you get down to the ones who really mean it. You stop, the rest of them stop sucking up all your resources. You know what you got to deal with. And you're the ones that really mean it. 
Or else you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night. Hey, don't you be afraid one second. You, if you have to endure a persecution, God will give you the grace to do it. Don't you be afraid of anything that is to come. I don't care what happens, nuclear war, whatever. We win. The only way that we don't win is we stop trying. And we quit. And we give in. And that would be crazy because we win. Anyway, there's this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And he's the leader persecuting the church. He's the main one going around gathering Christians up and having them stoned and putting put in prison. He can't stand the church. He thinks that uh, it's all a big cult. And he, he thinks he's doing God a favor. Have you ever seen anybody like that? They got zeal, but it's in the wrong direction. Well, you know what happened to Saul of Tarsus. He was on the road to Damascus to find believers that he could imprison. And the Lord met him on the road. And he blinded him with a big light. He said, Saul, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting my people. But I got a better plan for you. Saul was blinded by the glory of God. Couldn't see. But he had never seen more clearly on the inside. He was enlightened on the inside. And then God sent someone to heal him physically. Get him filled with the Holy Ghost. And then guess what he did? Paul was the first one that I see in the Bible to go on a missionary journey. To say, hey, I'm going to make a plan. I got a plan. I'm going to go from here to there to there to there. And I'm going to reach these people. He became the first missionary in the Bible. Isn't that cool? That the guy who's, whose main focus was to stop the spread of Christianity became a missionary. Isn't that how God does it? He takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He'll blow your mind. Ephesians 3.8 says, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, this is Paul talking. Of course, you know they changed his name from Saul to Paul. He went from Saul to Paul. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. He said, I don't even deserve this. I'm the least worthy. And somebody in here, probably, you're always thinking that you're the least worthy. You know, I see God doing things for other people, but He would never do it for me because, you know, I don't deserve it because of what I did in the past. We can't, we, we're our own worst enemy. We, we like tie an anchor around our own self and anchor ourselves to our mistakes in the past and we're afraid to move forward. We identify with who we were, but God doesn't see who you were anymore. He actually doesn't even see who you are now. He sees who you're going to be. And He loves taking that old chunk of coal and polishing it down to a beautiful diamond and putting it in His crown and say, look what the Lord has done. In the end of Acts, Paul is, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned, he's been through it all. I mean, he, this guy, he would, walk into, he would walk into a lion's den. I'm not kidding. If, and he would try to preach to a lion. He, he was crazy. He, would, he didn't care. He just trusted God in every situation. And he, and he got stoned. He got left for dead. They beat him with rods on his feet. And he tells about all the things he went through. And he says, you know what? I'd do it all over again. 
He said, all the things I lost because of this, I counted all as dung. Like dung for the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been living. I don't know what I was doing before, but now I've been living. I fill up in my body the sufferings that, we, that Jesus needed me to suffer for His gospel's sake. See, we're supposed to do that. In the end, Paul is arrested and he's brought to Rome to meet with Caesar because he appealed to Caesar because Paul was a Roman citizen. You may know that story. And that's the end of Acts, but not before he had left a trail of new churches that he had established all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, Italy. And I looked on the map and I thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty wide, wide swath that the Apostle Paul had made it. In modern day, that would be Syria, almost all of Syria, Turkey, big Turkey, that's a big place, Greece, and all the way over to Italy. And he was able to put New Testament churches in places like Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. Then he wrote letters to the churches. He was an apostle. He, he would put the leaders in place and he would make sure that they got up and running. He would show, he was a church planter. He understood that it's, it's more than just getting somebody to say a prayer. But it's about discipling them to the point they can get up and run and, and make more disciples. And so he began to write letters to these churches. And you may recognize some of them. Romans. Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, first and second. These churches that he started, he wrote these letters to them, and they ended up being what most of what we now know as the New Testament. The things that he taught those churches, he teaches to us through his writings, many of which he wrote in jail. Some of us, if we were in jail, we'd be like, well, I'm going to take a couple years off. I'll meet y'all back when I get out. Paul's like, give me a pen and some paper. He didn't even stop in prison, I'm telling you. He was so excited. In those 32 years in the book of Acts, a good portion of the New Testament was written, and it was paired with the Old Testament. And it became the number one best-selling book of all times that we now know as the Bible. <laughs> a book penned by man, but authored by God. So, after that, we move out of the apostolic age, so to speak, when the apostles were still alive. We move past that. We see that in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. They just got tired of all those Christians and, and all that was going on in Jerusalem, and they just destroyed the whole city, burnt it down, tore down the walls. They killed 1.5 million Jews in the process, Jews and Christians. And the, the Jewish people were no longer a nation. They were dispersed throughout the world where they would remain for over 2,000 years. No longer a nation. I wrote down some things that happened since the church age. This happened on the way to 2018. In 306 AD, there was a Roman emperor called Constantine. He got converted to Christianity. And so since he was the emperor, he made Christianity 
the religion of all of Rome, the Roman Empire. Roman Empire kind of controlled the world. <laughs> You're thinking, yes, now that's who I want to get saved. It'd be like trying to get one of our presidents saved or something like that. That's going to happen. No. But we'd be excited. You know, he could make policy in favor of us and all this. And so Constantine was the emperor and somebody got him saved. His mama preached to him when he was little. He got saved. He grew up as a Christian and he, and, uh, he declared that Christianity was the new religion of all of the Roman Empire. And I imagine there was a party among the Christians. Well, we got it made now. Everything's just going to be gravy now. The Roman emperor, the emperor's for us. But not so much. And I think we learn from what happened there is why our founding fathers said something about a separation of church and state. That's what they meant. Not, a, not that there couldn't be a religion, there couldn't be a church in your state, which is what they're trying to say now, but know that the, the government needs to play no role in the church. Because once Constantine got in there, how many of you know that politicians can be a little shady? Some of them? I didn't say this. How many of you know that they tend to take whatever they can and use it as a power play? And they got their hands in Christianity and it started, they started the Roman Catholic Church and because it was ruled by the Roman Empire. And when you got a secular organization with crooked politicians and such in charge of the church, it got worse. It did not get better. They've used religion to control the people. So that would be something to think about. We not, don't necessarily want our government telling, you know, being on our side, pretending to be on our side, and then trying to control the church. You got places, you know, that are nonprofit or whatever, and they're trying to help people, and, and the government's offering them funds. But if you use these funds, you can't say the name of Jesus. That's going on here in America, isn't it? Okay, so you see where I'm going with this. There is a reason that there's a separation of church and state, but it's not the one that the government gives you, not the one that the, the liberals, not say liberals, not the one that the un, un-Christians want you to believe it is. All right, so where was I at before? I, 306 A.D. In 625 A.D., um, the Muslim religion was created by the prophet Muhammad who wrote a book called the Quran. And uh, it just so happened to coincide, coincide with the start of the Dark Ages. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. <laughs> but it was a dark time. It was a dark period. It was a time that the church had been controlled by the government. The church had become an institutionalized church. It was not about relationships. It had taken the Word of God and was only available in Latin, and only the priests could leave, read the Latin, and the priests would dole it out as, as they wanted to get what they wanted, and they made up rules as they wanted, and the church, the common, per, the common person did not feel like he had any access to God. They did not know that they were saved by grace. That's when the good works, trying to be a good person, earn your way to heaven stuff started, and they were not living according to the teachings of Jesus. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God was in some foreign language that the common man not only didn't have access to, but couldn't read it or understand it if they could. And it was called the Dark Ages because the light had been 
somewhat snuffed out. Of course, we know it couldn't be snuffed out. And it was still alive and well. But it would be many ages. In the 13th century, we had the Crusades where the Christians went to war against the Muslims. Not a real Christian thing to do, but it wasn't a good time. In 1382, the Bible is finally translated into English by John Wycliffe. Then we started making some progress. It just, it just so happens that coincides with the Great Enlightenment period. <laughs> the Dark Ages started with the Muslims, and the Great Enlightenment started when they translated the Bible into English so the common uh, man could read it. Or, and then in 1455, Johann Gutenberg invents the printing press. And guess what's the first book he prints? The Bible, amen. In 1517, the Protestant, the Protestant Reformation, um, Martin Luther wrote what we call a 95 Thesis. It was 95 reasons that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church controlled by the government, was not telling the truth, was not living biblically. It was not doing what it was supposed to do. He wrote 95 things and he went to the church and he tacked it up on the door. Back then, they would burn you at the stake. That was back during the witch trials and hunts and all those things and the uh, great inquisition and they would, they would just kill you. The church was not the church back then as we know it. And so he gave 95 reasons why the Bible says this is supposed to be, is supposed to be like this and the church ain't doing it right. Well, that caused... Of course, he gave his life ultimately for that cause. But um, that's when the Protestant Reformation happens. That means you, you hear of uh, Catholic and Protestant. The Protestant was more like what we are, uh, the way we believe. And uh, that's when people broke off from the Roman Catholic Church because that was the only thing that they had at the time. And they broke off. Now, of course, now we've splintered into many, many denominations, way too many. We've got one for people who like horses and one for people who like dogs, you know. I don't but but originally it was just a you know, people that were breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and and got back to the Word of God. You know, on his list may have been things like you don't really have to go to a man and tell him your sins and then say a certain amount of prayers to be forgiven. You can go straight to God. There's really not a place called purgatory where you can buy enough candles to get somebody into heaven no you know it's the point of man wants to die then the judgment and you know there, there's some things that he tried to set straight you know about about what they were teaching so a lot of other stuff happened we're running out of time somebody wrote amazing grace we fought a few world wars they invented the slinky and here we are so. <coughs> long story short oh in 1948 those Jews that had been dispersed 2,000 years earlier came back together as a nation never happened before in recorded history. Only God could have done that. There's never been a people group that's been dispersed for that long, nowhere near that long, who even had the, the want to to get back together as a nation. Or the how to. How do you come back together as a nation? But it would just so happens right after World War II when, they were, when the uh, United Nations was putting things back together 
Israel says, we want our nation back. And they came back and they fought for it. And they, they had a miraculous war and won back the nation of Israel in 1967. They won back uh, Jerusalem as their capital. And just some miraculous stuff. You read the stories about it. Uh, a lot has happened over the course of mankind, but little has changed. A lot has happened, but little has changed. People are still rebellious, and God is still faithful. We can... We can go to the dollar store and we can buy a Bible. There's a church on every corner. 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. And you think, wow, we're doing good. That's awesome. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.1, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, at the end of this season, there'll be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. My goodness, have you ever seen such an ungrateful generation that we're living in? Does any, I mean, does anybody care about the blood that was spilt to make this nation what it is today? They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others. They will have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. It says stay away from people like that. But how do we stay away? It's hard to do when half of them are in your church. I mean... At least on Christmas and Easter, you know what I'm saying? Eighty percent of the people here in America claim to be Christians. But I would say eighty percent of them are acting like this right here. How do you rectify the two? Everybody's got a a, a Bible on their phone. They got a Bible app. But they also got some porn apps right at their disposal right there. So looking back, the broad path is still broad. And it still leads to destruction. And the narrow way, well, it's, it's uncrowded. The Great Commission is still the Great Commission. The Great Commandment, still the Great Commandment. And this is the age of grace, and I can't believe we're not taking more advantage of it. See, this season is coming to a close. And after that, well, we're going to talk about that next week. I don't want to spoil that. But after that, it won't be the age of grace anymore. After that, something else is coming. Another season. And we need to be taking full advantage of this time that we have. Romans eleven twenty five says, I want you to understand this mystery dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will only last until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. See, this age of grace, when that last Gentile says, yes, Lord, something's going to happen. We'll talk about that next week. Something's going to happen when that last person said it. Something's going to happen. And it's going to take us into a new season. When will this season be over? When the last Gentile 
when the last person... See, God has turned His attention. He's made us the stars of of the show right now. This is our time to turn to Christ. Y'all have to come next week to see what the next season is. Somebody say, pay attention, Angie. (laughs) I was thinking, we may be able now through modern technology and and man's ingenuity and how smart we all are, we may be able to put a satellite into space, even a space station up there. Did you know there were people on that thing that came over my head? They were out of space, and I saw I saw one waving. No, I didn't, but it was almost big enough that you could see somebody looking out a porthole. But we can put man on the moon. We can put men in space. And we can tell you if you're in South Haven or if you're in Horn Lake or wherever you're at, exactly what time you can see it come overhead. Modern technology. We're just overly smart. In fact, in case you're wondering, tonight at 9 01, for three minutes, you will be able to view, if it's not cloudy, the space station coming from the north-northwest to the east-southeast. So that would be probably from there going over just like that. For three minutes, you'll see it coming, and you'll see it coming. 901. And if, if, you, if you don't watch it tonight... Hey, it's okay. You can probably watch it tomorrow night. Get on the NASA website and find out when you can see it in your location. It's pretty awesome. I love it. That's good. That's good. But you know what? You have to pay attention. You have to stay ready if you're going to catch the real shooting star when he streaks from the east to the west. You're going to have to be waiting on him. You're going to have to be watching and it could be any minute. You don't know what I'm talking about? It's an analogy. It's kind of like I'm talking about, well, we'll talk about it next week, I'll tell you. Somebody explain it to her. <clears throat> it's an analogy for Jesus coming back. The real shooting star. See, that man-made thing, we know what it's going to do, but I don't think they'll tell you when you're going to see the next shooting star. You've got to pay attention. And when he comes, it's going to come like a thief in the night, in the twinkling of an eye. We, be, we need to be ready. We need to be watching because this season is going to be over. And there's going to be a new season. It's going to be good for some of you. I didn't say that. The Bible did. And that's all I got to say about that. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.